Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. We'll dive into our continued Lenten journey as we follow Jesus, leading us to Holy Week, leading us to perhaps the drama of Good Friday, followed by the exuberance of Easter. You know, we began two weeks ago, just after Ash Wednesday, as Jesus entered into the wilderness, and we felt the anxiety of his solitude and yet his resolve. Then we experienced his comfort and his uh, being cared for by the angels as he stepped out of the desert into his ministry and the path set before him. Today, as we return to our Lenten passages, we make a jump from the book of Mark, which we've been in most of this new year. We'll be jumping over to our lectionary passage in the book of John this morning. Today's text focuses on one pretty simple question. What does it mean to be the faithful church of Jesus? No big deal. Just one of those small, simple, easy questions. What does it mean to be the faithful church of Jesus? I find myself wrestling with this question all the time. Maybe you don't. Maybe it just comes with my vocation. But I find myself wrestling with this. As a pastor, I almost feel like I have an existential crisis every week. (laughs) What does it mean to faithfully be the church of Jesus? What do we do? What do we not do? I want to take nothing for granted. I want to take no assumptions. I just simply want to be faithful to Jesus and faithful to you as we wrestle with the question, how do we be the faithful church of Christ? Of course, we recognize this question is twofold. What does it mean to be Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, in our community, in our neighborhood? But also, what does it mean to be a part of the faithful people of God in this time and in this place in history? Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells a story to those listening, and he says, A man had a fig tree planted in his front yard, and he came to it expecting to find figs, but there weren't any. And he said to his gardener, What's going on here? For three years now, I've come to this tree expecting figs, and not one fig have I found. Chop it down. Why waste good ground and water any longer? Then the gardener said, let's give it another year. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. Maybe it will produce next year. And if it doesn't, then we can chop it down. Like the fig tree, it's expected to bear fruit. It seems that the church is expected to do certain things, to fulfill certain roles. But even here, did you catch the mercy, the grace being offered to this tree? (laughs) The gardener wants to give it one more chance. I love this. Who is the gardener all throughout Scripture? Over and over and over again, in account after account, who is the gardener? It's God. God is the gardener. And God wants to give it one more chance. That's good news for us. 
I'm not saying that I feel like we're failing and crashing and burning. We haven't borne a single fig in three years. I think we're doing wonderful. But we always need that grace. Today, our children in Children's Church are hearing that story of the fig tree. And they're going to be eating figs for snacks. So you might ask them how the story was or how the figs tasted. I don't know how. I don't think it's Fig Newtons. I think Grace is kind of above that. But not sure exactly what it will be. But as we look into our text today, we're going to see clues that we can begin to glean on what it means to be this faithful church of Christ in our community, but then also in our lives as we extend and be Jesus to those around us. As our text in John chapter 2 begins, it's nearing the time of Passover. This means that Jerusalem is bursting at the seams with visitors from far and wide. The hearts and minds of the people are focused on remembering the events of the Exodus. This is what the Passover celebrates, is remembering the events of the Exodus out of slavery from Egypt over 1,400 years ago. And they're still celebrating. Jews are flocking to Jerusalem and to the temple specifically in order to offer their annual sacrifices. Many Jews, this the one time of year they come to Jerusalem and they all visit the temple. Gentiles also who have heard about this new rabbi, Jesus, are gathering with open and expectant hearts. It seems the Holy Spirit is drawing all humanity to himself. And so, like the rest, Jesus, as a faithful Jew, comes to the temple, the sacred place of worship, one of these thin spaces we've been talking about the last few weeks, these thin spaces as we understand that this is one of the sacred dwelling places of God here on earth. It must have been a magnificent moment. As we open the word together to hear exactly what happened, let us pray. Holy Spirit, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this is John chapter 2, verses 12, verses 13 through 22. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip with some ropes, and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, and he scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold the doves, he told them, get these things out of here. <laughs> Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing if God gave you authority to do this, then show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has been 46 years to build this temple. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you would rebuild it in three days? 
But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, this scene comes to life as one of these kind of most action-packed passages of scripture that many of us can think of or remember. We would rightly expect the temple to be the sacred, worshipful space, but upon entering, Jesus found little in the way of worship taking place. Instead, the outer court, which was kind of this area around the central part of the temple, and it was the only place the Gentiles could enter. The Gentiles could not go into the inner courts. And Jesus found this outer court. It was like an uh, like open-air market, Cow be- cows bellowing, bellowing, sheep bleeding, and turtle doves cooing. Do the turtle doves coo? I think so. People shouting, coins being clanged. You know, ironically, all of this activity that's happening in the outer court, it was necessary for the temple to fulfill its function. It was necessary for it to fulfill its purpose. After all, you know, people needed to pay their tithe, pay their offering. And the temple tax, the offering that was collected, couldn't be done so with Roman coins because whose picture was on it? So they needed the temple coin. So they needed to change their coins in in order to pay the offering. Likewise, the animal sacrifices that needed to be presented, these animals needed to be without blemish. They needed to be perfect animals. And most of the people traveling to Jerusalem were traveling from a far distance. Who could have made the pilgrim, pilgrimage without their sheep or their animal receiving a blemish? All of this activity was in the service of the worship of the temple. So what did Jesus find so offensive about it? Was it the activity? Was it kind of the nature of it? Was it where the things were taking place? The fact that this temple market was actually depriving Gentiles from the one place that they could perhaps worship this God who's begun begun to pull on their heart. You know, while the temple appeared to be fulfilling its function, Jesus makes it clear that something was lost. Something was missing. The trappings were still there, but somehow the temple had lost its heart, its reason for being. It had been taken over by buyers and sellers, consumers and marketers who knew how to fill the pews and meet capital campaign goals. The ways of the world had invaded the church gradually and subtly Never intentionally meaning harm, but always in the service of the church and the mission. And so you see the tension that we face, that I face when I think about these things. You see why sometimes I feel like an existential crisis coming every Monday morning. Surely all preachers get this queasy, uneasy feeling in the pit of their stomach when Jesus takes up the whip and drives the money changers from the temple. Queasy because, yeah, we're excited when Jesus goes into like prophetic mode, right? But also queasy because we fear 
what might have come sneaking in little by little in such ways that we don't even notice. If we really begin taking stock of what we do and how we do it, might we find ourselves too in danger of a temple cleansing? So in this season of Lent, this passage gives us an opportunity to reflect. It gives us an opportunity to be introspective and to even ask ourselves, by what metric should we be measuring the things that we do to be the faithful church of God? What should we be avoiding? What should we be doing? Who has the answers and the authority to lead us? The Jews in our passage ask this very same question of Jesus. They say, what are you doing? If you have the authority to do this, then show us a miraculous sign. In other words, the prophets spoke with authority about the church. Prove to us that you're worthy to be counted among them. The Jewish scripture has a long, deep history of calling the people of God to accountability, to fidelity. Jesus is acting in this tradition of Israel's prophets who cried out in protest against the profaning of the temple, against the debasing of the worship of the Lord, against substituting ritual and tradition for devotion. All throughout the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and many of the other prophets were shown what pleases and displeases God. So likely in Jesus' mind and likely in those watching this scene unfold, these very passages are coming to mind. These are the passages that are bouncing around in their ears. For instance, Jeremiah 7.11, don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on here. I, the Lord, have spoken. Jeremiah doesn't spell ex out exactly what evil is going on, what this means, and I don't know that I plan to put myself in the seat of the judger today, but it does not make, take much imagination in many ways to consider throughout church history and throughout the teaching of Christ what may displease God about the church. After all, Jesus shows us over and over again what priorities heaven has and the priorities that then we should be taking upon ourselves. I mean, we could just look at Matthew verses five or chapters five through seven. We could reteach through the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't know that we have time to do all that today. It would certainly be a good place to start, but perhaps it would be sufficient to say when our priorities are self-serving rather than kingdom-focused, Lord, have mercy. When our focus is selfish gain rather than generous openness, Lord, have mercy. When we stand in the place of the gatekeeper rather than the obedient flock of God, Lord, have mercy. When our worship is driven by practicality, seeking complex systems of our own making, Lord, have mercy. And when our practice is routine, rote, perhaps even comfortable, Lord, have mercy. As Jesus encountered in the temple of Jerusalem, the business of church 
had taken over the time and the space in which the Jew and the Gentile alike might find space and time to encounter God. As a pastor, this is my greatest fear, to be found guilty of not making time and space for our genuine encounter with God. Day to day, week to week, season to season. My greatest desire, I would say, is for our time together to be a time that is uniquely marked with space and time so that we could encounter the Holy Spirit of God speaking into our hearts. So we begin to understand what Jesus would have us avoid. But to what shall we turn? Just as the prophet Jeremiah's words came to mind, so too words from Isaiah likely were in the mind of Christ and those around him that day. Isaiah 57, 56 verses, verse 7 says, I will bring them to the holy mountain of Jerusalem and I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for the nations. Just like our lists of don'ts, the church has no trouble brainstorming all kinds of things to do, to be busy, to do, to be uh, fulfilling our purpose. But are these purposes fulfilling this description a house of prayer for the nations. Of course, we rightly understand prayer to be just what it says, spending our time and our energy together in communion and conversation, hearing and speaking and communing with God. To be a community of people who pray for one another and who pray for our shared lives alongside each other. Last summer, we spent four weeks diving into the practice of prayer when we spent a series on practicing the way of Christ in prayer. We understood that prayer is to be honest, sharing our burdens and needs for God, with God, while also sharing our gratitude and our devotion with him. It is to begin in communion with God through silence and contemplation it is hearing inspiration and discernment in our moments with the Lord. And finally, it's affirming God's way and truth and mercy and justice in the world. And what does all of this time in prayer do? <laughs> what does it do for us? What does it do for our community? Not only does it recenter our hearts and our minds and our spirits on the way of God, but it also reforms us perhaps, into a humble, trusting people. Essentially, prayer turns our hearts from the trappings of the den of thieves that we've been warned about and reorients us towards our fidelity with God. In other words, if we're getting prayer right, we don't have to worry too much about being a den of thieves. <laughs> And while we understand prayer to be the activities classically labeled as prayer, of closed eyes, crossed hands, perhaps humble postures, Scripture reminds us that all of life, our entire approach to life, 
can become prayer. Our singing, our conversation, our encouragement, our giving, our time spent commuting and working and laboring and resting, even in our recreation and our entertainment, prayer can and should permeate all that we do, especially in our shared life together. Paul says, let's pray with never, let's pray never ceasingly, ever ceasingly. How would you say it? Let's pray without ceasing. <laughs> prayer in all things, prayer in all places. We are in prayer when we are turning toward God rather than away from him. So as we're wrapping our mind around these things of what it means to be the church of Christ, the temple of the Lord, so to speak, an odd twist takes place in our passage. Just Jesus makes this puzzling statement about tearing down the temple and raising it up three days later. One aspect that we may miss from just the surface level reading of the scripture is the temple itself at this point is under a massive renovation project in a futile effort to win over his ungrateful su subjects the Jewish king, Herod the Great, the puppet king of the Jews, propped up by the occupying Roman forces. Herod began a massive restoration and expansion project on the temple, and it was still underway in the time of Jesus. It had been going on for 15 years. You can imagine this building covered with scaffolding, piles of rubble everywhere, walls partially rebuilt and, and being taken down, workers a mess. This is on top of the fact that the temple had, was being rebuilt again. And it said 46 years. This, had, this is the third time the temple had been rebuilt in this place. So how could Jesus possibly rebuild the temple in three days? You know, it must have been an absurd joke, an irreverent joke perhaps. But of course, we know what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body, right? God has always dwelt in temples and on mountains and pillars of fire and smoke. But Jesus makes a paradigm shift and implies that through his resurrection, that Christ himself becomes the living temple of God. And we know that through our invitation to life eternal, through Christ, our salvation in him, we align our hearts with his and identify with him through baptism and resurrection that we become living temples of God. So when we ask ourselves, what does it mean to be the faithful church of Christ? We're talking about Emmaus Road. We're talking about the church of Christ in the world, but we're also talking about ourselves, our lives. Each of us live one unified life with Christ and his church in this place, but also in our personal lives, our personal testimony. Our very presence in the world brings devotion and worship and prayer of God into every corner, every light, every shadow that we encounter. Which leads to perhaps a more alarming question for us today. <laughs> what tables may need overturned in my life? in order to fulfill the calling to be the living temple of God? What clutter or disrepair 
has slowly been tolerated over time that Jesus hopes to cleanse in me today. We're never ready to answer those questions. But at the same time, I hope that when we gather together each week, we can humbly be ready to answer that question every week. And God does this work in us. One way that we can respond to this question that will continue through our time, our conclusion here and our time at the table, you'll notice on the seats near you, there were some small paper squares. If you're willing, I know that there's something in each of us that we could likely identify, something that the Lord would love to rid us of. The clutter, the disrepair that maybe has slowly been tolerated over time in our hearts, the tables that perhaps need overturned. So the invitation is to prayerfully consider, and if you feel led to write that in a simple word, a simple sentence. You can then fold that paper and on our two side altars, there's a offering tray. You can simply leave that at the altar of Christ after we've received from the table this morning. It's a tough and humbling question, I know, but let me share an encouragement with you today. It can be easy to be hard on ourselves, to beat ourselves up over our shortcomings, our disrepair. But like the gardener in the fig tree, that is not God's intention. God's heart for us is always open, always inviting, That's not why we return to the season of Lent each year. That's why we give ourselves this space as we prepare our hearts for the joy and exuberance of Easter. Jesus demonstrates that the best way to protect ourselves from losing our way is simply to devote ourselves to coming to the Lord time and time and time again in humility and prayer, in devotion and sacrament, in confession in generosity and in trust. The invitation today is not what is not that different than the one a couple weeks ago, and it's not that different from the one next week. It's kind of the standing invitation around here. It's simply to turn off the noise, turn off the distractions, to be honest and to acknowledge the clutter. And to each week allow the Lord to refine us more and more into the people of Christ as we walk into the open arms of God. We're invited to draw near as the Holy Spirit investigates our inner lives, inspires us for our outward journey of life together and to live in love and harmony with all mankind and creation around us. As we do so, we have opportunity to consider how we do that. 
not only individually, but as a church, as Emmaus Road. My mind is constantly milling that question over and over. How can we be the faithful church of Christ, Emmaus Road? I do have ideas, I do have thoughts, and I'm working on milling on things. We'll see these maybe coming in the next year or so. But as we look to this moment of prayer and coming at the Lord's table, may we also engage in the Lenten invitation to take stock and to perhaps set aside the clutter, the disrepair in our own hearts so that we can be God's faithful people. As we come now to the Lord's table, we do so with open, humble hearts that we may receive the cleansing of the Lord, the cleansing of Christ in our hearts, drawing us ever closer to communion and devotion with God. On the back of your sermon notes, we each week prepare a couple of suggestions for you, prayers for you to take into the week ahead, perhaps even a practice for you to engage in. In closing, I'd like to pray one of the prayers on the back of your worship notes. Gracious God, whose power is made perfect in weakness, whose wisdom appears as foolishness in this world, we thank you for the scandal of the cross. In Jesus Christ, you overturn all our usual ways of behaving and believing. You scatter our false notions of discipleship as easily as coins are spilled from the box. You correct our notions of piety and order with fierce passion. Do not let your church become content and contained as an institution, raised to ruin what is distorted in us and raise us to new life as a community so that we may be the body of Christ in and for the world. With fear and joy, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.